So, <clears throat> I'm going to go ahead and, uh, and pray for this morning. I feel like I really need it. Father, thank you for this morning, and thank you for your son, Jesus. I loved uh, singing the words this morning about him being our friend, our defender. And that's just, I bet that song was picked on purpose, because that's what we're talking in the sense about today. Uh, but it's so true. It's so true that you are our friend. And I really do want to preach this morning as, I'm pre- as though like, I'm just telling people about you as a friend. I've got this amazing friend. His name is Jesus. Let me tell you about him. I want to love and adore you this morning. I want to lavishly worship you. And so I pray for your help. I can't do that on my own. I pray that this morning that we would be in open room, open hearts, that want to receive what you have to say this morning. That we love you, we need you, we want you. Have your way with us this morning. We invite you. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. So um, this is the last Sunday of the decade. Yeah. Well, let you sit on that one. Chew on that for a second. Mm-hmm. I'm just getting started. That was like seven seconds in. So this is kind of the kind of the time of the year where uh, one of my I love lists. I think if you've been around for a while, you know that um, I'm a list maker. I think in lists. I dream in lists. And right now is a great time of the year for people like me because it's it's a time where people make lists about like the best things of the decade. And so, or the year. And so, like, there's famous people that, like, President Obama always, like, he has, like, a famous list. Here's the books I read this year. And he puts it out there. Uh, Brad Sarian did that uh, for the Restored Family of Churches. If you're, signed, if you're not signed up, sign up for that newsletter. You get an update on what's happening in the life of the family of churches. And Brad did, like, a top ten books of the year. It's great. Uh, but for me, I'm a dad. I have two kids, Josh and Addie, a third one on the way. Maybe next time I see you, she'll be here. Well, Ellie, we don't know. We're hopeful that it's not next week. With that said, I read a lot of like, kid books. Uh, we, we read them at night. I'm getting somewhere with this. There's a point to this, I promise. And so like, my favorite, I think my favorite book of the decade is actually this little book called You Are Special by Max Lucado. Uh, if you guys haven't read this book, put it on your, on your list. It's a really amazing book. I'm going to tell you about it if you haven't read it. Some spoilers coming. Sorry. It's, it's basically like, think Pinocchio invades solving California. It's kind of like, um, it's a wooden people. They're called the Wemmicks. And there's like a wood carver. His name is Eli who made them. And they live in like this little Dutch village. I don't know how else to describe it. That's just what it looks like. And, um, and they walk around with boxes. And in the boxes, they have uh, dots and stars. Who's, who's actually read this book? Sorry, curiosity. Oh, about half the room. I'm amazed. Uh, so there's dots and stars, and the, the stars are basically put on people who have, uh, they're, they're pretty, they're talented, so they get a star. Uh, the dots actually get put on people who are not. So if you're not pretty or talented, you get a gray dot. And so then, you know, like we meet the, the kind of main character, his name is Punchinello. Pinocchio, Punchinello, I'm not sure if that's intentional. Uh, but in any case... Punchinello is the main character, and he is an unathletic, tongue-tied guy. And so he is just covered from, like, head to toe in dots. And over the course of time, like, we realize this guy's, like, self-worth has actually been deeply affected by this, and he kind of starts to pull back and withdraw. Like, he's actually believed the value judgments that were made about him. And 
So it's a kid's book. It's a very simple book, but it's super relatable, which is what I think makes it amazing. Because I think every single one of us has had value judgments made about us. And we have made value judgments about other people. I spent some time thinking about this uh, this week, and I think we have, I just wrote down a few. I think this starts very young in life. So think about like your earliest memories on the playground, the thing that we all dreaded, or at least some of us dreaded, time to pick teams. It's like, it's based on your physical appearance. Like, do you look fast? Do you look strong? If you don't, you're the last person picked on the team. Dot. Uh, achievement. Student of the month. Honor roll. Star. Or the flip side of this, a note, a yellow note from the teacher saying, come see me. The dot. I think Josh got one of those recently. Then as you get older, it, just, it, like, it becomes teasing. Like, you're too, you're, you're too short. Dot. You're too tall. Dot. You're too smart, dot. You're too dumb, dot. It's like we're all over the place. I feel like uh, when we're, especially like seventh, seventh grade is the worst, by the way, for all of this. Uh, yeah, I see a lot of nodding. It is, re- it's tr- it is the worst, absolute worst. And it can get a little bit more intense. Uh, this is not funny, but like this, it happened to me in seventh grade. Uh, it became like a, I, I got my first dot put on me because of my race. I'm, I'm Puerto Rican. I'm Hispanic, and somebody thought it'd be funny to put like a bag of beans in my desk so that when I opened it, I would open a bag of beans. And that was like the first time I got a dot because of my race. And it goes on and on, right? Uh, College acceptance, we get accepted star, we get rejected dot. It happens with work, it happens with accolades, it happens with money, we have filed for bankruptcy, like stuff like that happens. Uh, Now we have social media, so now there's literally like likes, that are like stars. On Facebook, on the gram, uh, you get retweets on, on Instagram, there's message boards, and the honest truth is I find, kind of like catch myself looking. I don't know if you, if this is like deep nerd, you roll like deep as a nerd if you're doing this probably, but I'm right there with you. You're on like message boards online, like talking about your like favorite interests, like I'm talking about the angels and who they're signing in the off season. And like, I have this thought and I have nobody to talk to about it because nobody likes the angels other than Justin. I don't know if he's here. He's not here. Uh, so I'll just drop it on a message board. And then I find myself like looking, Hey, did anybody like that? Did anybody like it? And like, one out of two times, somebody likes it, and I feel good about myself. But it lasts for about five seconds, and then it's back to my normal self. So we get passed over, we get rejected, we get criticized. There's dots, dots, dots all over life, and stars. I think ultimately what I'm trying to say is I think in life, we often want to accumulate as many stars as we can and avoid the dots like the plague, if at all possible. And that's our default mode a lot of the time. That's just what we go to without even realizing it. And I don't even think we really want to. I think we stop and think about it, we're like, this isn't what the Christian life is about. Like a lot of us have been here. If you're new, I'm, I'm so glad that you're here. Uh, a lot of us have been journeying together for a while. And like the one thing we've been discovering in community is that we have a new life. Like Jesus comes to give new life. His gospel isn't just something, it's, it is a message that then leads us into a new way to live. And we want that. As we're growing in this gospel, like we know we're forgiven. Many of us are experiencing forgiveness for the first time. We know that God cares about us, that he sees us, that he values us. There's more. But at the same time, we have like this thing where we're just thinking stars and dots all the time. And so here's what I'm trying to say. I think that even though we want to, like this book talks about, acquire stars 
and avoid dots. I think we all know that there's something more in this life for us. As disciples of Jesus, there is a life of love that we're actually called to cultivate as disciples. And so how do we walk into this freedom? How do we find this new life? How do we break out of the stars and dots mentality? That's what I want to talk to you guys about today. The reality is this mindset, it runs deep. We're not like two, one or two Christian life hacks away from getting out of this thing. This is like a whole new, a whole new way of life that we need. And he, in, in this story, if you end up reading it, uh, Punchinello meets this person. He meets somebody who's different. This person's name is Lucia. Guess what's on Lucia? Nothing. Nothing. Nothing stays on her. And he's like, what does she have? I want it. I want to know. And so today, actually, in Scripture, we're going to meet someone who is Lucia, someone who's basically like the stars and the dots did not stay on her. Her name was Mary. Maybe you've heard her story before. We're going to take a fresh look at it this morning out of John 12. If you have your Bible, turn over to John 12. And we're going to figure out, like, why did nothing stick to Mary? Why did none of the stars stick to her or the dots? How did she live her life as a disciple with such freedom and joy? So John 12, we're going to read it. Before we do, quick context. This is like a really important hinge point. We've been, if you're new, we've been going through the book of John. Uh, since the beginning of our Sunday morning gatherings a year and a half ago, we're, through, we're, at, we're at John 12. So <laughs> buckle up. So Jesus' public ministry is coming to a close. So this is a hinge point. This is a transitionary moment in the book. It's a big deal. And he knows what awaits him, a betrayal and a cross. That's what Jesus is, is waiting for. So the backdrop of this, it's Passover week. I uh, think the best way to think about this is like Super Bowl week. I think when I lived in San Diego, did they host the Super Bowl? I don't remember. This is a terrible analogy. At some point in the past, I think before I moved there, San Diego hosted the Super Bowl. And the city would flood with people. And there's a bunch of people just getting ready for the big game. And so, like, this is sort of like Super Bowl week in Jerusalem. It's like people are kind of descending on to the city, but it's not Super Bowl, it's the Passover. It's like a big moment in the, uh, the life of, the, of, the, of Israel, the people of God. And so we're going to catch up with Jesus and his disciples. What's happening in kind of like the back, we're going like to take a peek. What's happening with Jesus and his disciples in this kind of important moment when Jesus' ministry is coming to a close? So I'm going to read this. John 12, starting at verse 1. It says this, six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, the one Jesus had raised from the dead. So if you weren't here with us a few weeks back, Jesus raised Lazarus, his friend, from the dead. Very important. We'll come back to it. Uh, so verse 2, they gave a dinner there for him. Seems like a reasonable thing to do. You just raise a guy from the dead. Let's throw him a dinner. So Martha was there, and she was serving them, and Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table with him. Verse 3, and then now we, we meet Mary. It says this, And then Mary took a pound of perfume, pure and expensive nard, anointed Jesus' feet, and wiped his feet with her hair. So the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. So if you're reading this, it feels sort of abrupt and random. It isn't. And we're going to unpack that in a little bit. Let's keep going. Verse 4. It's a highly significant moment that we're going to learn a ton from, I think, today. Verse 4 says this, Then one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was about to betray him, 
said, why wasn't this perfume sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? That's about a, a year's worth of wages. Which seems like a sensible question, because that's a lot of money. Why wasn't it sold and given to the poor? Verse 6. He didn't say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. He was in charge of the money bag and would steal part of what was put in it. Okay, so we get the real motivation here. Uh, it seems like he was just mad because the perfume could have been sold, it could have been put in his money bag, and he could have paid off his donkey with it, basically. <laughs> it's a little pastoral humor, folks. Just getting started. Verse 7. Jesus answered, Leave her alone. She has kept it for the day of my burial. For you always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. So Jesus sees right through the hypocrisy. He loves what Mary did. He's not bummed about it at all, that she's extravagant in her love. He doesn't say, you're being wasteful. You're being impractical. He defends her. He sticks up for her when she's attacked for loving him. We'll talk a little bit more about that later, too. Verse 9, let's keep going. It says this, Then a large crowd of the Jews learned he was there. They came not only because of Jesus, but also because of Lazarus. They wanted to see him. The one, again, as if we'd forget, the one he raised from the dead. Do you see, like, the emphasis here? He raised him from the dead. He raised him from the dead. Remember? He raised him from the dead. But the chief, verse 10, But the chief priest had decided to kill Lazarus also, because he was the reason many of the Jews were deserting them and believing in Jesus and there. Just like Judas was exposed, like what he wanted was money. Uh, what they wanted was influence. They didn't want to lose their power. So, some observations about this text that I had. So, on the one hand, this is a profoundly inspiring text, and we're going to unpack that in detail. On the flip side, I think this is a terrifying text. It is a sobering text. Jesus raised the dude, as, as though you can miss it, Jesus raised the guy from the dead. Just stop for a minute. All of us in this room have probably, I'm not, I don't want to, I, I don't say this, um, I don't want to be insensitive. We've all been to, to funerals before. And imagine what it would be like, and I've had this thought before, like, I, 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 like want this, I wish this person would just get up. There's like a person I love in this casket. I want them to get up. Imagine seeing that happen. Imagine seeing someone walk out of a casket. Right, Dakota? It's wild. Thank you, Dakota. That's the, yes, it's staggering. It's stunning. And yet, what do we see in this text? Is it revival breaking out? Is everybody on their face worshiping Jesus? No. There's power and control. There's, people are thinking about the approval of others, the influence that they're losing. They wanted more stars. And maybe it's a little more cynical, like murders, kind of, it's pretty dark. They're going to kill Jesus. But they wanted stars. So what's my point? The human heart is dark, and it is in need of rescue. And, by the way, this is not news. If you read the Old Testament over and over and over again, we see this. Ezekiel 36, 26. Dorian mentioned it when he was up here. He mentioned, do you hear him say the stony heart? You guys noticed when he said that? A stony heart, a heart of stone. 
That's the way that the human heart is. Do you know what, what, what's interesting about stone? Nothing. It's cold, it's dead, it's lifeless. That's the human heart. But in Ezekiel 36, 26, there's a promise. God said, I'm going to remove that heart of stone. I'm going to give you a heart of flesh. And I'm going to put a new spirit within you. And in this text, we see both. We see the death, like how bad the human heart is, and then we see the promise and the hope of a new heart and what can happen. We see it in Mary. Mary. There's a new people forming. There's a new creation breaking in. Jesus, the one who raises people from the dead, he's creating a new people who have a new way to live, who are no longer obsessing about stars and dots, about maintaining their status quo, about protecting themselves. There's great hope. Mary shows us what it means to really live. And do you know why? Because Mary treasured Jesus. She treasured him. We treasure all sorts of things. Approval, power, control. We're not that unlike the Pharisees. I don't know why I said it like Pharisees. We're not, un- we're not all that unlike them. We're way more like them than we realized. We love comfort and control. And I'm just thinking about my own life. I don't even have a window as much into yours, but you could probably fill it in with what you've got going on. Treasuring Jesus, though, that's rare. That's rarefied air that we're in. Do you guys know what nard was? She broke like this. She broke this open. She poured nard over Jesus. It was a rare, a precious imported, uh, it was precious imported kind of oil from India. And it was the pure nard that she got. It was the best stuff. And it was actually brought, like, back in the day, there was no, uh, there were no airplanes. Like, it was just brought on caravan all the way from India down into Israel. It was super expensive. Back then, you didn't have a 401k account. You had no retirement accounts. But you could purchase something like this. And this represented, like, a type of wealth. For her, it might have been a family heirloom. It, honestly, it might have been her, her inheritance or a part of it. And she broke it open. She gave a gift that was not sensible, not at all practical. Somebody, boy, we're gonna, you read it in the text, you could see why people would poo-poo on that idea. Like, what are you doing? Bro, that's your retirement, or sis, that's your retirement account. And you know what she did? She poured it all out. And it says that it filled the house. It's a picture of the extravagance of her grace. And notice what John, John highlights the fact that she anointed his what? His feet. Do you want to know why John did that? Do you know who was down at the feet of people? Servants. It's a position of humility. It's the lowliest position you could take. So Mary, obviously, she wasn't from like a poor family. She had this, this treasure and she broke it open. And it's kind of nice because we're, we live in Temecula in, the, in the, the global, like in the world, we're at like the top in terms of wealth. A lot of us, we feel financial pressure, and I totally get that. But the truth is, like, we are the wealth, amongst, the, amongst the wealthiest people that have ever lived on the face of the earth. We have so much, but are we servants in that way? Do we know that? Do we take that humble posture that Mary does? The spot reserved for servants, that's where she is. Also, we see her in other places. She's at the feet of Jesus learning. She just loves feet. We don't love feet. She does. Jesus' feet. 
Is that a joke? <laughs> a little pastoral humor for you? Okay, so what do we see Mary doing? And I'm just kind of slowing down so we can really get a sense of like how extravagant this devotion is. You may have noticed that she let down her hair. I'm going to read you a quote about that. Here, it might not be a big deal. We walk around with our hair down. I wear my hair down a lot. Another joke. I let my curls free every so often. Now, women did not let their hair down in public. And the only one who saw a woman's hair was her husband. So Mary is acting with abandon, with extravagant abandon, hoping that the close circle of friends will understand they don't. Given the the taboos of the very pious speaking against women, sorry, even given the taboos of the very pious against even speaking with a woman, undoubtedly the suspicions of most people were probably aroused when they saw too much cross-gender affection between non-relatives and public. It would have seemed immoral to bystanders. Dot, dot, dot. And she didn't care a lick. And guess who else didn't care? Jesus. He loved it. He did not mind. So, obvious question. Now that we have a taste of like how extravagant this was, how do we become like Mary? How do we treasure Jesus like Mary did? I'm going to read it quick, quickly out of Luke 10, verses 38 to 42. This is a different gospel that gives us another aspect of Mary's life. It says this, As Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him, to Jesus. 39, she had a sister called Mary. Where was she? Sitting at his feet, listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by herself, by myself? Tell her to help me. Dot, dot, dot. How did Jesus respond? Verse 41, Martha, Martha. The Lord answered, you are worried and upset about many things, but few things are actually needed, or indeed only one. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. Even Martha tried to put dots on her, her own sister, who was a follower of Jesus. From, <laughs> on the one hand, it's like people are telling Mary, you're doing too little, you're not doing enough. And then on the other hand, you're doing way too much. Disciples, expect criticism. Expect it. It's going to usually come from one camp or the other, or sometimes the same person will criticize you in different ways. Uh, In my early days as a Christian, I was really, really, not that I'm not anymore, but I was so, the scriptures were like, I just, I read them because I didn't get it. I wanted to understand. I wanted to learn. So I would sit sit down, and I would crack my Bible open and just read. And I kind of wish I had just asked someone, hey, can you sit down with me and explain this? Because it was really hard to understand. It's like, try reading Job when you're a baby Christian. All that poetry. So I'm sitting there like, what is Job saying? I don't understand this. Am I supposed to take this literally? What's going on? And, um, And someone came up to me and said, all you do is read the Bible. Why don't you go do something? So I got like the, you're not doing anything, criticism and critique. This same person uh, once got a, a, 
saw my bank statements and saw like my giving and was like, you do too much. You give too much. Same person. And, and the truth was like, it, it wasn't that much. It was like, it wasn't even consistent. I just said that month I had just given something. I hadn't figured out like giving yet. It was a brand new baby disciple. But I felt like I was coming, I was getting pummeled from both areas. You're doing too much. You're not doing anything. Doing too much, doing too little. Friends, like dots, 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 dots. Expect this. This is normal stuff. How does Jesus respond, though, to that? He, we sang it this morning. He defends his people. He defends his people. He's not worried at all that Mary isn't busily doing something. He's not. He defends Mary's choice to just sit and be with him. That's what he does. Think about how that shaped Mary. Seriously, think about that. If that was your engagement and your interaction with Jesus, how would that change you? I think Mary got the lesson, and she stayed at his feet. And she kept going back there in different ways and different, different days for different reasons. And so here's the thing. There's this invitation to intimate friendship that we see in this passage Jesus is making to us today to get to know him, to ponder his words and ponder his works. That's what Mary did. This is what Michael Eaton says. This is a commentator. He's a guy that has helped me a lot to understand the scriptures. He says, The Marys of this world are few. How can we ever know a love of Jesus like hers? The answer surely is, Mary had spent much time in adoring her master. When she and Martha went to see Jesus after Lazarus' death, it was Mary who fell at Jesus' feet. That's a story that we covered several weeks back. But when she saw Jesus after Lazarus, her brother died, she fell at his feet. And she wept, and Jesus wept with her. It was Mary who showed her love for Jesus by wanting to listen to him rather than to speak to others, to sit rather than to rush around getting things done. If you sit at his feet, you will have the kind of love that wants to anoint his feet. I thought that was really insightful. If you sit at his feet, you will have the kind of love that wants to anoint his feet. How do we get to be like Mary? by giving him time to tell us how much he loves us. We will love him when we are gripped by his love for us. If you read the little book, you'll find out that Punchinello asks Lucia, what's the deal, what's the secret? And she basically says, I go to Eli, who was the woodcarver, the woodmaker, who's basically in the place of God in the story, and I just let him remind me of how much he loves me. And so Punchinello does it, and there's like kind of like this moment where Eli, the woodcarver, is like holding him and just telling him, I love you. I don't care what anybody else says about you. Come, and come to me. And at the end of the story, and, Eli, and Punchinello starts to believe it, one of those little dots falls off. That's how the story ends. And I'm like, to be completely honest, for a while I was like, is this biblical? Because it's so good. It, can this be true? And this was almost like the Jesus song, like, yeah, it is. Dummy, like, yes. I love you, but it's, you're so thick. And this got me thinking about, uh, this got me thinking about, it's Christmas week. It doesn't feel like it. Anybody else is like, this does not feel like Christmas week anymore. It's weird having Christmas in the middle of the week. I'll just put, let's leave it there. Um, my, 
this, I, got, I was thinking this week about Christmas 91, 1991. Some of you weren't alive for it. Um, that's fine. I was. I remember it. And there was this movie that came out around that time called All Dogs Go to Heaven. Any fans in the house? Okay, not many. All right. So this will soften the blow a little bit. So this movie, if you have not seen it, don't. Don't. Whatever you do, do not show your children this movie. Seriously. I'll, I'll summarize it very quickly. There is this dog. His name is Charlie. He, he runs a casino with a shady mafiosi business partner called Carface Carruthers. Not making this up. Who betrays Charlie the dog and gets him sent to the pound so he won't have to share the profits of their illegal business that they have going on. Eventually, this, this mafiosi dog convinces Charlie after he gets out, hey, just take half the money and go. And so Charlie does whatever anybody would do in that situation. He gets wasted, he gets drunk, and then his business partner pushes a car and kills him, whacks him right there. He dies. Dog gets murdered. Kids movie. Kids movie. I'm just repeating what happened. I'm not, comment, I'm not even commenting on it. So, and of course, he goes to heaven by default, because that's where all dogs go. Even though he never did anything good or whatever in this version of heaven. And so here's the, here's the important part. Charlie, when he gets to heaven, he sees this pocket watch. Does anybody remember this pocket watch? We got one person in the room. This pocket watch represents his life. And so he winds it back. And so what happens? He falls back to earth. He turned the, the clock back on his life. He's back on earth. Here's the problem, though. There is a catch. When that watch stops, he goes straight to hell, to this cartoon hell. Kids movie. Just keep watching. Charlie doesn't learn. He returns to his shady business operations, plots revenge on Carface, his killer. Carface kidnaps a young girl. Naturally, that's what dogs do. Charlie frees her and then promises to help. It's all a lie. He's just using her. And so everything comes to a head when Charlie, who's using this girl, gets ambushed by, you guessed it, Carface Carruthers, who wants to get him back, and his thugs. And in a moment, the girl falls in this water, this ocean or whatever, and so does the watch. And so now Charlie has to make a choice. Am I going to save the girl, or am I going to save the watch and save my life? And so Charlie the dog, who's never done anything in his life, saves the girl and dies. But he gets to go to heaven, essentially, because he actually loves someone for the first time in his life. And then he comes back, of course, as a ghost to make amends. Kids movie. But this watch, I still have to say, it's the most ridiculous movie plot. I think somebody was on something when they wrote it. I'm just going to put that out there. I'll just leave that there for you to unpack later. But this watch was like, it captivated me. This little pocket watch. And I was obsessed. And so Christmas Eve 1991, I watched this movie, and I'm just like, I want that. I want that watch. Santa, get me that watch. That's what happened. And in my mind, it's kind of like... See, I can handle. He has sophisticated logistics all around the world. Unrivaled supply chain. He's built for last-minute requests. Santa can hang. 
And so then later that day, I tell my parents, hey, mom and dad, I asked Santa for a, for a gold watch. And it's like, you know, I don't know what time it was, late in the day on Christmas Eve in 1991. There's no Amazon Prime. There's no internet. It's Puerto Rico. I don't even know if we had cable at that point. And I go to bed, and all I'm thinking about is this golden pocket watch. Am I going to get it? Am I going to get it? Am I going to get it? And so I wake up the next morning just thinking about this watch. And I'm so good that that's all I got from that movie and not the rest of it. <laughs> I can barely sleep, and I'm like, how's Santa going to pull this off? But he's going to do it. So I wake up the next morning. I start opening gifts. I unpack one you know, Ninja Turtle gift after one like WWF wrestling figure after Ghostbusters. The 80s were good to me. The 90s were good to me. It was a great time for toys. And I'm like, where's the watch? And so I finally I grab a box. I open it. And there's this little box, and I open it. What's in it? The watch. The watch is in there. And I'm just like, dude, I'm so happy. Thanks, Santa. <laughs> Assist of the doggies in heaven, huh? It's a precious possession of mine. And so I love this watch. It was so precious to me. Years later, I hear the true story about what happened. Unbeknownst to me, my little abuelo, uh, a Spanish for grandfather, he basically, he caught wind of my request. And my grandpa, my abuelo, was like kind of the outgoing life of the party. Uh, He always, he maintained a very busy social schedule, even into his 70s and 80s. Uh, He had a hopping calendar. There were places to be, people to see. And so, obviously, Christmas Eve is like kind of the pinnacle of your social calendar for the year. And then he hears about my last-minute request. He drops everything, everything, to go on a mission to find a gold watch in this third-world country on Christmas Eve that doesn't have, you know? It's like finding a needle in a haystack. And so it's not the kind of thing that you could just go to KB Toys, for those of us that remember what KB Toys was, or Toys R Us, to get this, it's a very specific ask. It requires a jeweler, probably. And so he starts driving around. He starts asking around. It's not looking good. And then finally, he like, comes upon a jewelry store that's open, and he finds a gold watch. Someone's got the gold pocket watch. He brings it home. He wraps it. He puts it in the tree for me. And I, of course, thank Santa profusely. Here's the thing. He didn't have to do that. In Puerto Rico, you get a mulligan. If you mess it on Christmas, you get three Kings Day. It's two weeks later. It's the second wave of gifts. He did not have to do that. But he wanted to because he loved me. And my love for my little abuelo has deepened more and more as I've thought about, heard this story and heard it told, as I got to know what he was really like, as I got to know his love for me. He died 15 years ago, but I still think about him often. And I love and treasure him because he loved and treasured me. And I, have these, I can tell you these stories. So it is with Jesus. Like, do we know his love that way? Do we know how loved we are? So here's, if you're writing notes, write down, never show my kids, all talks go to heaven. And then underneath that, write down, we love him because we are captivated by his love for us. We love him because we are captivated by his love for us. How are we captivated by him? I think there's kind of two ways that we see Mary being captivated. Number one, she sees him as like the exalted Lord, right? She sees him raise Lazarus from the dead. 
It's pretty spectacular. But she also saw him as like intimate friend. Jesus taught her, shared his life with her, sat with her, wept with her. I think in order to be captivated by his love, we need both. We need both. And I was chewing on this this week. I, sometimes I work out of the library in Temecula. Have you ever been there before? It's got like some of the most amazing views I've ever seen in my life. And you sit at the library, you got a little table, and then like it's glass, and then you just see the mountains. And obviously it's been snow- raining and it's been snowing in the mountains. It is stunning. It's like jaw-dropping. And so I'm like looking at the mountains and then like in the distance, and then I look down, and right underneath there is Ronald Reagan Sports Park, and there's a bunch of baseball fields, and there's people playing catch. And so it hit me like, this is it. We need like the God who created the mountains. We need Genesis 1, the God who created and spoke the heavens and the earth. We need to be like caught up in awe over him, how amazing with him he is. And then we also need the God who plays catch with us. The Genesis 2. Adam, come over here. Let's, let's name the animals. We need both at the same. We need both at different times. But we can't get away from this reality that we need to be in awe and we need to, we need to give a catch with God. We need to give and receive in our relationship with God. And so for me, what does that game of catch look like? Um, I'm going to try to keep this brief, but I think for everybody it's going to look a little bit different. I think I've had times in my life, um, especially in the last year and a half, where I haven't had a choice. I've had to press into Jesus. Uh, A year and a half ago, my wife Heather and I, uh, we got kind of like a... um, Something we weren't expected. I was, I was in Uptown. We've got Paul and Nicole here from Uptown. I was in Uptown at, at the uh, co-work space. There's a co-work space there that a lot of people work out of. And um, I get a call. Basically, I get called in to talk to Andy. And he, he, I was an elder in Uptown, which is, the church is a family. Belonged to this community. Loved this community. And then he tells me, like, I think there's, there's an opportunity for you to potentially move up to Temecula to help get Restored Temecula planted. And it just brought out all this stuff. It brought out, I'm fearful by nature. I like to minimize risk. Uh, I actually started driving up a mountain this weekend for a minute, and then I turned around because it looked a little foggy. (laughs) So that's just by nature. I love the snow, but I don't like to drive. And so all of this, like, fear comes out. It's like, pray about going to Temecula. Okay. I don't feel ready. I don't know that I can lead this community. I don't feel ready. I don't know that I'm gifted in that way to lead a community um, as, a, as part of a church planning team. Can I preach? Can I raise leaders? Am I even a leader? Will my family survive? I struggle to separate my identity from my performance. So I like, got all this fear, anxiety, worry. All my concerns, and a lot of them are stars and dots, honestly. Just dots I'm afraid of getting or stars I'm afraid won't come. But here's what I discovered in that season. It was an invitation to enjoy a relationship with Jesus, to walk intimately with him. And so we started to pray. We started to seek God. It was a really special season, I think, for Heather and I. We started to talk to him like he's a real person who cares about us, who's engaged with what we're going through. And we sensed him starting to speak. First, he put, I feel like he put Acts 13, 1 to 5, on our hearts. Set apart Saul and Barnabas for this work. They were getting sent out into the mission field. 
could he be calling us to go? I feel like he encouraged our hearts. I got this, I love the Sandlot, better movie. I do recommend that one. I love the Sandlot. And um, I feel like he put a picture in, in my heart about just like, if you've ever watched the Sandlot, it's like this great adventure story with these kids who play together and they grow up together and they play on a team. And then at the end of the movie, it comes to an end. And it, it's like this nostalgic time where they get to reminisce about the good times that they had. And people moved on, but they stayed connected, a part of a story that endures. And I really felt like Jesus was like honoring our time and work in Uptown like a friend would in a way that made sense to me because I love the Sandlot. And then we started asking questions. God, how will our finances work, Lord? We only have one car. We need two in Temecula. This is not going to work. And then as we're praying, he's like, Matthew 6. The birds, I take care of the birds and the flowers. How much more am I going to take care of you? Don't worry. I know what you need. Shortly thereafter, we were gifted a car. Amazing. God, what role am I going to play? I'm scared. I don't know what I'm going to bring to the table. I feel like he just drops this little, little piece of gold you know, on me. I feel like I got a picture of Tom and I flying an airplane. And Tom is like kind of taking, and I love airplanes. Tom is, is kind of like flying, and he's taking me up, and it's like higher than I'd ever been to kind of enjoy like this big picture of the kingdom of God. And then I helped the, ta- the, the plane stay in the air by working the checklists. <laughs> Keep it safe and stable. I feel like God revealed like this complimentary team dynamic. Jesus, how am I going to minister? How's this going to look? Paul Pham was here. I didn't know he was going to be here today until this morning. He gets to, we're in, like, in a meeting and he gets this picture of Andre the Giant. If you don't know who Andre the Giant is, look him up later. Fascinating French man. <laughs> Um, and he was a wrestler who had like the most famous match in wrestling history with Hulk Hogan where he put him over and if you don't know what, if you don't follow wrestling basically under the giant let Hulk Hogan win so that he can make a big deal out of Hulk Hogan kind of set him off on his career and Paul's like I think God is calling you to put Jesus over in your life put him on the spotlight make much of him and I was like yes that's it and I can go on and on and it's just like this beautiful season of like pursuing intimate friendship with him and discovering like he's real, he cares, he speaks, he reminds me of who I am. And I could just cut stuff. There's more. So here's the reality. This kind of life is hard. We get derailed all the time. We get derailed through distractions Sometimes, yeah, there's like the reality that the stars and the dots take up so much of our time that we might not even have time for Jesus or space for him. And then there's also this reality that we get distracted. We live in probably the most distracted age of all time. I mean, we have like, I can't can't believe my phone's not on me right now. It's right there. It's just like, it's always there, constantly. We're distracted. We've got a lot on our minds and our hearts but man, Jesus, he's worth it. That's what I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to end with, this idea that he's like absolutely worth it. Like he loves you dearly. If you, I want to call the band back up. If you don't know how loved you are, you won't treasure him. You won't. But if you do know how loved you are, you will lavish your love on him. And your life will look totally different. And the truth is, Mary, when she broke 
the perfume on Jesus, do you know what she was preparing him for? His death. Nobody got that except for her. He was going to his death. And so she, the reality is she got his feet, but the truth is she probably got all of them. John wanted to emphasize his feet, but she got all of them. And so that week, when Jesus went to the cross, when he was agonizing in the garden, when he went to the cross, he had the aroma, that sweet aroma. Mary's lavish love carried him through that week. She got it. This is all about Jesus' death and his resurrection for us. She understood that that was the fullest expression of his love. I'm going to ask you to stand up. I just want to close with this like very simple question. Do you know how loved you are? Do you know how loved you are this morning? If you don't, do you want to have a taste and experience of his love? That's what we're here for. And I want to encourage you as we sing, there's going to be a time to respond to and get prayer. Like, don't let this morning go without telling him, I want to experience this love, this love that you laid down your life for me. I want to know that love and I want to express it. And as we do, I think we're going to become an amazing community of lovers, of extravagant lovers. And if this world needs anything, it's a church that's not anything but extravagant lovers that aren't defined by other things but by Jesus' love. So let's sing to him.